you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open up to the book of Esther, chapter 1. Esther, chapter 1. It's kind of left of center in the Bible. If you find the book of Psalms, the next book to your left will be Job. The next book to your left will be Esther. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents if you need to. And uh, today we begin a journey in this amazing book of the Bible. I'm excited to be preaching again today. It's, it, uh, I've had the previous three Sundays out of the pulpit, for which I'm grateful. It's unusual uh, for me to be out that length of time, but uh, it was much needed. And let me tell you, uh, my soul feasted Sunday after Sunday as I listened to Pastor Steve preach from Psalm 37, Pastor Mike preach from the book of Job, and then last week our dear friend Dave Como preach on Psalm 103. Uh, God was good to take care of me on those Sundays and you as well. I'm grateful for the servants he's given us. And I'm glad to be back uh, in the pulpit this morning, starting with Esther chapter 1. And for the next several weeks, we're going to work chapter by chapter through this book. It'll take us into the Christmas season, and uh, then we'll be ready to start a new year after that. The book of Esther is perhaps the most perplexing book of the Bible. There are many reasons why we should probably choose not to study the book of Esther. Uh, In this book, did you know that the word God does not appear a single time? God does not speak in this book. God does not provide a miracle. No one in this story prays. No one worships. Moral depravity and ambiguity abounds. If you were to replace every occurrence of the word Jews with the name of some other ethnic group, there'd be no reason for you to think that this book had anything at all to do with God or his people. And likewise, the person of Esther is one of the most perplexing characters in the entire Bible. Esther's not your normal heroine. Uh, She shows no concern for Jewish dietary laws when in the court of the pagan king. Instead of holding boldly and bravely to her Jewish identity like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, well, she hides her Jewish identity. She spends time in the bedroom of a Gentile king to whom she's not married, but whom she persuades to make her the new queen. And when she learns that the Jewish people are at risk, she initially refuses to act. She goes to the king only after her uncle Mordecai points out that she's not going to escape harm if she doesn't act on their behalf. Later on in the book, Esther shows a remarkable capacity for brutality. There's an attack and she asks that the attack by Jewish people on Gentile peoples be extended another day and as a result, hundreds more Gentiles die. This is the word of the Lord. So why should we study a book of the Bible where God's voice and God's name are absent? Why should we study a book of the Bible where there are no miracles, where the characters are complicated, where morality is not clear? I think it's because so much of this book mirrors our own experience with the Lord. How often have you looked at your world or your life and you've wondered, where is God? I need to hear him, but I I can't find his voice. I I need him to act, but I can't see his hand. Hasn't that been our experience often? Wanting to hear from the Lord, but not finding 
his voice. Why would we study the life of someone like Esther? Well, because she's so much like us. Her life is complicated. Her choices are questionable. She makes mistakes. She's flawed. And yet she meets the mercy of God. And isn't that also the story of your life? Knowing these things, the question then becomes, how can we not study the book of Esther? Because this shows us an incredible depiction of real life and our real experience. In some weird way, the book of Esther is perhaps the most relatable book in the entire Bible to our lived experience. We can't afford not to spend time with Esther and this story. And so it's vital if, if we're going to grasp this story in its fullness and, and understand the characters, the plot, all that happens. We have to insert ourselves into the history of this story. So if you will step with me into the Wayback Machine, we're going to go all the way back to the year 586 B.C. It was a good year. Not really, it was actually a really bad year. 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem. And, and part of his ruling philosophy is he exiles people from their homelands back to the region around his capital in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian ruler, Babylon is the world power at the time, conquers Jerusalem, takes God's people, marches them across the desert back to Babylon. And there for the next 65 plus years, God's people live as conquered people, oppressed people in a foreign land. After 65 years, the Babylonian Empire came to a screeching halt and the new power in the world was the Persian kingdom. And five years after the Persians take command, a total of 70 years after God's people have been sent into exile, the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree that the Jewish people should return back to their homeland and he sent with them a blank check to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's an incredible act of God through this king who did not know him. And so many of God's people left their homes in exile after generations of being there and they went back to Jerusalem, but not everyone did. Now, if you want to read more about the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding efforts, spend time in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They'll give you a step-by-step -step account of God's people returning and the city and its walls and the temple being rebuilt. But some Jewish people did not return to Jerusalem. After all, they had been in that place for 70 years. They'd been in Babylon slash Persia for multiple generations. They had families, they had homes, they had attachments, they had reasons to stay. And so many of them chose to remain right where they were. That would be people like Esther and her uncle Mordecai. By the time we get to Esther chapter 1, we think we're probably about 50 or 60 years after the return to Jerusalem. After the end of exile. And the events of the book of Esther take place under the rule of one notable king. You're going to hear his name over and over again. If you were to look at it in your Bible, we'll look at it in just a moment. It's a hard name to pronounce. Uh, the English version is Ahasuerus. 
The Hebrew version of his name is Ahasuerus. The Greek version is Xerxes. I think that's the choice VeggieTales made as well. But we're going to roll with Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus uh, was a king who ruled for roughly 20 years. Uh, The events of his reign are recorded by a contemporary historian. Not long after his death, a man named Herodotus sat down and wrote about uh, Ahasuerus, his kingdom, his exploits, the things that he did. Uh, And Ahasuerus this morning is going to point us to God. But he's going to do it in a weird way. You see, it's it's not Ahasuerus' religion, his love for the Lord, his obedience to the Lord, his walk with the Lord that points us to the Lord. In fact, it is the total rotten state of his soul and entire being that leaves us thirsty for a greater king, leaves us wanting someone truer and more glorious and more wonderful. Ahasuerus, he's he's a pig. He just indulges every human appetite. There is nothing about him that is noble or admirable. And as we sit and look at this man on the throne, it tells us there's got to be something better. And there is. And have you ever been in that place? Have you ever looked at the world around you and you've thought, there's got to be something better than this? You've looked at your life and and you define your life perhaps in moments or in long seasons by what you lack or what you've lost. And it's easy for us to look at those who have a lot and to say, why is it this way, God? This person's wicked. They seem to be living an easy life, not afflicted like me, not lost things like me, not lost people like me. So God, why is it that the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? But didn't we learn in our study of wisdom literature just over the past few weeks not to envy the wicked, not to look at what they seem to possess in terms of worldly goods and to want that for ourselves. Rather, our appetites, our desire is to be for God and God alone, and He is where we find our ultimate satisfaction. We start our study of Esther with this extreme dissatisfaction by looking at the life and the reign of Ahasuerus. And what it creates in us is an intense desire to know God and to walk with Him more. And so that's my goal this morning. My purpose in starting this study is to intensify your desire for God. I want to sort of take the scales away from our eyes that we would see the world and its power structures for what they truly are, and we would see God for how infinitely beautiful and glorious he truly is. So I want to do that by showing you in this story two experiences that increase our desire for God. So follow along with me as I read Esther chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be here on the screen and you can follow along there. Esther chapter 1. These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles, and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. 
At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered, had ordered every wine steward in the household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus's palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Memucan. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, According to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? Memucan said in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus' provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media who hear about the Queen's act will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she the decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands from greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Memucan's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language, that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. It's pure gold. It's absolutely amazing the portrayal of the king given to us at the beginning of this story and as we see a glimpse into Ahasuerus's thinking and actions and rule it creates in us a desire for a better king it creates in us an intense desire for God and so what are the two experiences in this story that increase our desire for God? The first experience is this. It's a view of counterfeit glory. 
The first nine verses of this chapter give us a view of counterfeit glory. To be quite specific, it is Ahasuerus's glory. So the book opens with this incredibly detailed description of the glory of Ahasuerus. And so the book describes, first of all, the expanse of his kingdom. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that he rules over 127 provinces from India to Kush. Kush is the biblical name for Ethiopia. So from India to Ethiopia, he owns every single piece of soil. Let me show you a map just to give you a quick idea of the scope of his kingdom. Can I get a woohoo for the map? You're rowdy today. All right. So here is his kingdom. You see the Mediterranean Sea on the left. There's Jerusalem, Ethiopia down in the bottom left corner. Uh, you see the capital of Susa, which is in modern-day southwest Iran, India to the east. It is a massive, massive empire. All of that, all of it, everyone in that border belongs to Ahasuerus. He rules over all of it. The story also tells us about the vastness of his wealth. In verses 3 and 4, he held a feast for every power broker in his kingdom. All his officials and staff, the army, the nobles, officials from all 127 provinces, they're all there to eat at this feast. And how long did the feast last? Did you catch that in verse 4? 180 days. Now, historians tell us that it wasn't long after this year of Esther that Ahasuerus mounted a military campaign against his major other world power, the kingdom of Greece. And so he amassed his armies and all of his wealth. He went and invaded Greece, and he was utterly defeated and humiliated and nearly bankrupt his own kingdom. Bible scholars assume, are guessing, that the feast that's described here in Esther chapter 1 was his way of garnering support from all of his power brokers to go on this military campaign. And so he wants to show them that he has the wealth, the ability to undertake this task. So he burns through kingdom resources in this 180-day feast in which food and wine and fleshly activities never stop in order to garner the support of these power brokers. So we're seeing the expanse of his kingdom, the vastness of his wealth. The, the story also gives us the opulence of his everyday life. In verses 5 to 9, it describes curtains and curtain rods and mosaic flooring of precious stones, wine glasses, and wine that never ran low. Ahasuerus is wealthy beyond comprehension, and yet there is nothing enviable about his life. His relationships are based on his wealth. His advisors are present because of his title. His marriage is lifeless, and his soul is empty without God. Ahasuerus has everything and yet has nothing because he does not know the Lord. His is a pitiful life. King Ahasuerus wanted to show his glory. And so that's why he brought all the people in and put on the big shebang for months on end. But God's people know that glory is not found in titles or wealth or furniture. That is a counterfeit glory. What is true glory? True glory, God's glory, is the display of God's infinite and intrinsic worth. 
That's a simple definition that's really complicated, and it comes from John Piper. I like it a lot. God's glory is the public display of his infinite and intrinsic worth. God's glory is not found in curtains and furniture. It's in himself. He himself is infinitely and intrinsically valuable, worthy, majestic. He is glorious. And God's glory is made public. It's not hidden under a bushel. It is made public for all to know. It's seen in creation. In Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim sing before the presence of God in his throne room, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. His glory is on display, not only in creation, but also in the lives of his people. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus told his disciples, Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So we live and speak and act in ways that radiate, reveal, go public with the glory of God, his infinite value and worth. And as we do that, our interactions with people leave them saying, her God must be incredible. His God's like nothing I've ever seen if, if that's the kind of person that results from it. And their responses also heap glory and reveal the glory of God as well. There is nothing that compares to the glory of God. There's nothing that satisfies us like the glory of God. Once we have read of the utter emptiness of King Ahasuerus' life, once we recognize the emptiness in the world around us, well, we're left with this hunger, this desire. I, I need something real. I, I have to see and know God in all of his glory. Perhaps we would respond with this kind of prayer from Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. David writes, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. This world has nothing for me. God, I want all that you are and all that you have. When you see what this world has to offer, friend, let your response be, give me Jesus. I've lost a lot. I've heard a lot. Things haven't gone the way I thought they should. I'll, I'm just going to take Jesus. And that's the way God's people go. So we've seen first this view of counterfeit glory. The second thing in the story that increases our desire for God is a view of laughable power. Verses 10 through 22, it, it turns into a comedy. We, we don't normally associate uh, comedy with biblical literature, but make no mistake, the way this story is written, it's written to evoke a laugh at the expense of the enemy of God's people. So Ahasuerus has the kingdom, he has the throne, the fortress, the wealth, the wine, the curtain rods. He has a king's power, he has a military leader's power, but he doesn't have the power to make his wife obey. In verse 11, he commanded that Queen Vashti be paraded in front of the banquet attendees in order to show off her beauty. Some commentators hear a hint of something salacious in that request. And so perhaps Vashti refuses to come because 
she will not be objectified in that way before an audience. Here's the king showing off his glory, his might, in order to gain support to lead an army into Greece, and he is completely upended by the queen. It's a comedy of errors that follows after this. The queen refuses to come, and so what does the king do? Well, as any rational human being would, he consults with the wise men of the kingdom. What am I to do with Vashti? My, my wife, my queen, she won't do what I've asked. You guys tell me, what should I, the king, do? He's utterly incompetent. He's not a good king, not a good man. He does not know how to be a husband. And so he convenes his council of wise men to help him figure out what to do. Memucan, ever the voice of reason, he steps to the forefront and he says, look, here's the deal, Queen Vashti hasn't only offended the king, she's offended everyone in the kingdom. I don't know how you get there, but somehow Memucan did. And King Ahasuerus says, hmm, now that I think about it, you're right. Her refusal to come is an offense to everyone. Memucan says, here's the worst part, king, you haven't even thought about this. When our women hear what the queen has done, they will revolt against their husbands, every single one of them. If Vashti can do it, I can do it. It's going to be chaos and fury throughout the entire empire. So hurry up and issue a decree that wives should obey their husbands. That will settle it. He goes public with his own humiliation. Stunning to me that a room full of men came up with this brilliant idea, and yet they did. And so Ahasuerus just acts the fool, being, uh, being advised by fools. And it is comical how utterly inept Ahasuerus and his group of advisors are. The story is told in this way in order to expose the incompetence of the Persian government. Look, they may have armies and wealth and wise men, but they are a court of fools. And so it raises this important question for us. Are the days of Ahasuerus over? I'm going to say no, they're not. This is not one localized experience where human leaders acted foolishly apart from the Lord. A simple perusal of human history will show us leader after leader, government after government, filled with flawed people, sometimes deeply flawed people. That shouldn't necessarily fill us with a sense of despair or worry, though. We should be grateful that the failures of people point us to the unmatched success and trustworthiness of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I think there's a very poignant application here for us in light of our current political situation. Let me just say real quick, it is not my goal or intention to say something about politics every Sunday from here on into November. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. And quite honestly, just about every time I say something about politics, Monday starts with a fire. I don't want that. But we can't avoid what I think is a really important application point here in this chapter. The lesson we should wake up remembering on November 4th is whether your candidate wins or loses, God is no more or no less on his throne. He reigns supreme, forever unmatched and unaided by any human leader.
And whether your candidate wins or loses, remember that God's agenda is still intact. God's agenda has moved without impediment through flawed human rulers like Saul and David, like Nebuchadnezzar and Ahasuerus. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the success of God's agenda has never been tied to any one person or political party or government or nation. God accomplishes his will perfectly. Now, we will know we've learned this lesson when we get to Sunday, November 8th, when we gather for worship that day. If we come in celebrating too much or mourning too much, we'll need to start this sermon series over again. I will turn this car around. <laughs> However, if we gather on November 8th with our hearts united to each other and our hope and joy anchored in Jesus Christ, then we're walking with the King as God's people ought to. But there's yet one more lesson here that resonates in my life. Maybe it resonates in yours. It's easy for me to read this story and to laugh at politicians, the king, others. But the hard reality I have to face is that I'm reflected in the foolishness of Ahasuerus as well. I also have my plans. I also have my feeble glory. I also have my my false thoughts about power and how things happen and, and what I need and a read on the situation. And my take on things is always foolish and laughable. So it's not just that I'm kind of like Ahasuerus. I'm worse than Ahasuerus because I know of the coming of Christ. I know of his death on the cross. I know of the empty tomb. I know of his promise to return again. And yet I still act in these foolish ways. My heart strays so often, and maybe yours does too. This is not just a story about other people. This is a story about me. It's a story about you and our need to walk deeply with God. So we must not be enamored with our own semblance of power, but seeing my flaws and the flaws of others puts us in the direction of walking with God, the God who alone is perfectly omnipotent. So Esther 1 leaves us with this intense desire to be with God because it exposes the emptiness of counterfeit glory and the silliness of human power. And so I wonder where Esther 1 finds you today. Do you look at human glory and human power and find it appealing, desirable, satisfying, a means to an end? It's very possible that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that's exactly how you think about things like wealth and power and titles and position. It's so important for you to understand the dissatisfaction you experience in this world. If you're not someone who follows Jesus Christ, I think you could look back over your life and you would be able to say, there's always been an emptiness in me. I've tried to fill that with things, whether that's with money or toys or at some point a person I thought would take care of this deep dissatisfaction in me. What you're after, you, you've got this innate longing for God, your creator. And you may not know that or understand it, and so you try to fill it with his creation rather than he himself. And here's something that's true. Money and people make for lousy gods every time. So you've never found the satisfaction you've desired. You've always lived with a counterfeit glory, with a muted power. 
And, and let me tell you, that the Bible tells us the situation is, is worse than we realize. Because God is the only one who can give your soul the satisfaction it desires. And he's the one that you push away with your attitudes and your actions and your behaviors. You rebel against him. And so how are you going to make up for that? It would seem that we're on our own without hope. And that would be true if it weren't for God, who is a God of love, a king of glory. So he has come to you, even though you haven't come to him. And he's come to us in the person of Jesus, who's born of a virgin. He is God in the flesh. And he died on the cross. He is the only one who could do this for us. He died on the cross in your place for your sins. He is perfectly sinless, and he's held accountable for your sins. And he died in your place. He took away your death. And here's his promise to you. If you will turn from all the junk of this world, and if you will set your life, your soul, your hope, your trust in him and only in him, you'll be forgiven. You'll be saved forever. Your soul will know the satisfaction it was created for. To my Christian friends, this is a weird passage because... It motivates us to desire God by showing us the utter failure of the world around us. But here's what I think would be a right response getting to the end of chapter 1. would be to turn off the news and get off social media and mute your cell phone and sit with God for a while. And, and when you do that, you can learn contentment. Pray, God, teach me to be content with you even in the middle of my crisis. Pray that prayer. Sit with God. Soak in his word. And don't get up until the fear and the panic or the self-confidence have subsided. Sit with God for a while and meditate on his glory. In the face of all the brokenness of this world and the pain you've personally experienced and carry with you, sit and meditate. Fill your mind with the word of God that you would see and understand the glory of God. It's a word we just read past so quickly, so often in our Bibles. How often do you pump the brakes and sit with God for the sake of knowing his glory, his infinite and intrinsic worth and when I see his glory when I understand just a sliver of it there's nothing this world has to offer that can compare Ahasuerus is a pitiful king and that makes me all the more grateful to belong to Christ the king and so our prayer this morning might come from Psalm 24 where David says the earth and everything in it the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord who is the king of glory the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? He's the Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. He's your king. He's your Lord and your Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, my prayer this morning is that you would show us your glory. Let that start now in some small part and let it continue. Open our eyes. Give us sight that we would see and understand and experience your infinite and intrinsic worth in this moment and beyond. Lord God, we need you. So for all the times that we have taken worldly treasure over heavenly treasure, forgive us. In all the ways today in which we, your children, 
put emphasis on worldly power over heavenly sovereignty. Lord, forgive us. And God, this morning, may the good news of the gospel fall fresh on my friends' hearts this morning, those who don't know you. Awaken them to faith that they would know new life, that they would live their days desiring their King of kings. It's in Jesus' name we pray.